This morning, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. I will be reading from the English Standard Version of the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. ESV, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many, the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And Father, now we praise you for being a good God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness toward us. Would you exalt the name of Christ here among us today and all over Wisconsin Rapids? Would you exalt the name of Christ in Wisconsin Dell, where the crew team is serving? And back near our home in Chicagoland, may the name of Christ be magnified all over the city. And God, through what you're doing here in this congregation, would you have the name of Christ proclaimed in places where Jesus is not yet known, where people have never even seen the first page of a New Testament, where Transworld Radio has not reached, where they have not met one believer. Please, O oh God, would you have mercy and get the gospel of Christ to those regions. Now bless us, God, that we may have ears to hear. Would you kindly and graciously speak to those who have never known Christ in the pardoning of sin and in forgiveness. Today, reveal Christ in them, God. And may we all give you praise and thanks for what you do. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we bless your name today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It only takes one bad experience about being open toward our pains, our struggles, our fears, and our failures for us to learn the dangers of being vulnerable. It only takes one time speaking in front of a lower grade class only to have classmates laugh at your summer experience. You enjoyed your summer events tremendously, but in their jealousy, your classmates decided to make fun of what you thought was normal for everyone. It only takes that ridicule to determine that if you ever have to speak in public again, it will not be about anything personal. 
It only took one friend to let out a secret about someone you liked or were dating or were about to start dating for you to make sure that going forward, you kept all your feelings bottled up away from so-called friends. You had no plans to kiss and tell. How dare someone else do it for you and embarrass you in front of others? Just one time it got back to you that neighbors or co-workers knew about the infighting or infidelity taking place in your childhood home. That would be enough for you to grow up and tell your own children never to talk about anything that takes place in the home to anyone who is not in the immediate family. Or you still remember when you made a mistake on your team or at the office and it zipped around text messages and emails before you could process a way to correct the mistake. That's all it took for you to determine any hint of your potential failure would never be known by the public. Once we determine that it is not necessary, prudent, or safe to tell others of the depths of our pains or of our real lives that are outside of public eye, it becomes very difficult or even impossible for some to convince themselves that the church and the people of the church are sanctuaries of harmlessness. Places where you can bring real pains and no one will harm you any further. No, we can't trust those rumor mills because we have all experienced gossip passed along in the form of prayer requests for others. However, far from holding his most sensitive thoughts and emotions and experiences close to his chest, sealed away behind a protective door like a watertight bulkhead on a carrier or on a submarine, the Apostle Paul brought his deepest anguish to the congregation at Corinth. He did this in the face of people questioning his credentials, calling him weak, and pulling some members away from following his preaching of Christ. That is, when Paul was being most vilified, most slandered, and most ridiculed for his choices in following Christ. It was then that Paul made his greatest despair known to others. Paul did it so that they and we would be able to glorify God for his goodness toward his own who experience despair. Paul's words are going to stretch the worldview of some of us and, and totally undo the worldview of others. The worldview that does not trust, that is skeptical, that loves conspiracies, and that always must be in the advantageous position toward others. To give us Another way of viewing paths to success, to blessings, to security and wholeness in life, Paul will put forth three things. First, 
By making our despairs known, people feel the weights of our pain. I'm in verses 8 through the first half of verse 9. When Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, he is using first century wording indicating that his audience has some general awareness of the happening but lacks the details. The Corinthians had heard that between Paul's last visit to them and his last correspondence, something bad had happened to Paul and Timothy in Asia near Ephesus, but exactly what they did not know. So Paul tells them that both he and Timothy had experienced great affliction or distress. He speaks of his trouble in two ways. One, he strings together a series of words that we translate as utterly burdened beyond our strength in the ESV, or as crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure in the NLT. The sense we get is that Paul and Timothy faced something that took them to the limits of their wits, to the limits of their emotions, to the limits of their physical ability just to make it. And they are revealing this to the full congregation at Corinth. They tell the Corinthians that they despaired of life itself. Corinthians, things were so bad. When we woke up in the morning, we were not sure if we would see the end of the day. And things were so bad that when we laid down at night, things we were facing, we were not sure that we would make it through till the next morning. Now that's some missionary report. Then too, Paul tells them that within themselves, both he and Timothy had the sentence of death. We translate this phrase with the words, we felt, to capture the idea behind in ourselves that is in the original. Both Paul and Timothy inside of themselves had the sense that an official decree of death had been cast upon them, that of these travails, God was saying to them that it is determined that here, you will die. That's what they both had concluded on the inside. Paul, I just can't shake the feeling that, that this is the end for me and you. Neither can I, Timothy. I think that the Lord has made this the way that it will end for both of us. Can you imagine that whatever they were facing, it was so painful, so scary, so terrifying that all they could feel was that death was imminent. Moreover, can you think of the risk that they are taking in saying this to people who already are being swayed against them? They already think that Paul is nothing in comparison to the so-called super apostles that we meet later in 2 Corinthians, who in Corinth are bringing charges against the apostle Paul. Why 
is Paul handing them more fodder to add to the portrayal of him being weak. Paul wants the Corinthians to feel the weight of what he was feeling. That for the sake of the gospel and for their sake, he had experienced deep despair and had thought that the end of his life was upon him. Who knows how long he suffered like this. But he tells them what he and Timothy felt so that the Corinthians could enter into their despair. Vulnerability like this often is a problem for many of us because, one, we have been hurt by being vulnerable. Two, we have been taught not to let people have anything over us or an advantage on us. Three, putting on the happy face is just the evangelical way. How are you doing? I'm blessed. Me too, praise the Lord. Really? all the time. (laughs) And four, we cannot ever appear to be weak or we think that if you have to talk to someone else, it means that you are weak because you couldn't deal with your problem on your own or solve it on your own. Truthfully, the weakness is in deceiving ourselves into thinking we have solved our problem on our own when all we did was stuff it down until someone else comes along and ticks us off enough for us to explode on that one. It is a lie that our knowledge, our manhood, our womanhood are being challenged by talking to others about our pain. No one is challenging your core identity any more than someone is challenging your manhood when you take your ABS breaks to get repaired at a service shop. No one is challenging your womanhood any more than when you get exfoliate performed at a day spa or you get a pedicure at a nail salon, both things you could do on your own. All you are doing, all we are doing when we do this is going to professionals. And in the case of talking, you would be going to an objective third-party professional. Manhood and womanhood are not on the table when we are being vulnerable to professionals. Only Armchairism is on the table. Is armchairism a word? I don't know if that's a word, but we just made it a word today. Only armchairism is on the table. We tell ourselves surface hurts are okay to share, but real pain and real-time pain, those things are off limits to others. We do not see the benefit of telling others of our pains. We only think that they will have something to hang over our heads. Even in saying this, you who have convinced yourself your whole life never to let your pains known to others, to say to you that vulnerability is modeled by Paul and Timothy here and is beneficial to the body of Christ means nothing to you. Yet, I don't see anything about Paul saying to Timothy, Tim, 
Now, don't tell them we thought we were going to die or they will never let us live it down. Instead, you see Paul telling his and Timothy's business of his and Timothy's feelings of despair. We do not want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. Paul wanted the Corinthians to feel the weight of their pains. Second, by making our despairs known, others are invited to review our hope with us. Others are invited to review our hope with us. I'm in the second half of verse 9 through verse 10, which says, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In sharing his raw emotions with the congregation, Paul finds God-related reasons for the despair they had experienced. God will be exalted in Paul's sharing of his despair. Had Paul not shared his troubles openly with the Corinthians, what he says here about God might ring hollow. But instead of ringing hollow, God is magnified as human ability is minimized. On this, multiple commentaries referenced the same extended quote by the reformer, John Calvin, on these verses, in which he said this. Now, it's an extended quote, so allow me to speak a long time here. There are, accordingly, two things to be observed here. In the first place, that the fleshly confidence with which we are puffed up is so obstinate that it cannot be overthrown in any other way than by our falling into utter despair. For as the flesh is proud, it does not willingly give way and never ceases to be insolent until it has been constrained. Nor are we brought into true submission until we have been brought down by the mighty hand of God. Secondly, it is to be observed that the saints themselves have some remnants of this disease adhering to them and that for this reason they are often reduced to an extremity that stripped of all self-confidence they may learn humility. Nay more, that this malady is so deeply rooted in the minds of men that even the most advanced are not thoroughly purged from it until God sets death before their eyes. Calvin finishes by saying this, and hence we may infer how displeasing to God confidence in ourselves must be when for the purpose of correcting it, it is necessary that we should be condemned to death. 
Calvin says that our confidence and our ability to work out everything on our own power is so entrenched and rebellion within us that God must give us a divine smackdown to crush pride and to bring us into conformity to him. He also says that even the most mature of believers cannot be cured of confidence in our own abilities to resolve or conquer all we face until we think we are staring death in the face and realize that this is the one hurdle that we cannot jump on our own. God will go so far as to cast the sentence of death before our eyes to bring us to that point. Late New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce paraphrased these clauses as, quote, and this was ordered in the providence of God so that we should abandon all trust in ourselves and place our trust solely in God who alone can raise the dead, unquote. Our hope is not that we will never suffer or that if we do face suffering, that we have enough resources within ourselves to overcome every challenge, every threat, every obstacle. Our gospel is not a gospel of self-reliance. The gospel of our hope is the good news of God-reliance that we are trusting the Lord to do everything to rescue us. This means we must accept that God is working to keep us from relying on ourselves. And this itself is an amazing thing that God has spoken through the mouth of Paul to the Corinthians for us. God permitted by decree that Paul and Timothy would not get out of this affliction in Asia until they felt they were going to die and had concluded within themselves that God had determined the point of despairing of life was going to be the time of their deaths. God did this to force every microscopic aspect of their beings to rely on God completely and alone in all things and to have no hope in anything else. Now, I can still think of three reasons why it might be difficult to rely on God as the only plan rather than as the backup plan once we have failed at our own efforts. A first reason is or first reason it is difficult to rely on God alone is that we do not like waiting. I know it's quiet in here, but an amen really goes there because I know that's true for all of us. It's not just true for me. We just don't like waiting. We don't like sitting in our discomfort. Discomfort seems to be against everything we believe about the will of God in Christ to bless us. But that is not Paul and Timothy's Christianity. The great thing about God our Father is that when we come to Him, even though we do not know the when, the what, and the how He will do, we do know that both when He does not seem to be acting and when He is acting on our behalf, He is always doing good toward us. A second reason we find it difficult to rely on God fully when we are being crushed 
threatened or overwhelmed is that we want to control the outcomes and make things go our way rather than the Lord's chosen way. We want to tell the Lord the best way to handle things when we can only see the issues that are within our purview. But the Lord sees the past and the present and the future. And he sees us and thousands of people affected by how he acts in our dilemmas as people enter into our pains and watch our testimony of deliverance. So we have to steer away from Christianized manipulation attempts, such as gathering people to our side or point of view when we feel we are facing injustice, making another phone call to make sure people have heard our concerns and understand the seriousness of the situation, giving the cold shoulder or shunning people, threatening to withhold blessings or giving the best sob story of what will happen if people do not act on our behalf right now with tears that would make crocodiles jealous. (laughs) When Paul was near death, do we really think he was praying something like this? Lord, please take us to the point of despairing of life. So that when the Corinthians are being challenged by the super apostles, we will be able to tell them to stop following those false apostles even at the risk of their own lives. Do we think that he and Timothy were praying something like, Lord, may you work this out in a way that will bring us to the very edge of death so that when I later write about momentary and light afflictions to the Corinthians and what happens when this tent is destroyed, I will have full credibility with the Corinthians. No. He was not praying anything like that, I suspect. In fact, It's more likely that Paul and Timothy were praying for full deliverance like we see them write to churches when they ask the churches to pray for them. But the Lord determined, not yet. There is a church that needs to serve poor believers in Macedonia. To encourage them to give sacrificially, Paul will need to argue that I can provide for every need. When he tells them to sacrifice their money because I supply seed to the sower, they will hear him because I supplied him life when he was on the edge of death. No, Paul, I will not deliver you yet. Sit in being at the point of death because I am doing more in my decree of absolute good than you can ever imagine in this present life. A third reason that relying on God alone is difficult is that sometimes we do not know when we are depending on ourselves. Sometimes we are crying out to the Lord while not realizing we are still holding on to vestiges of our own self-made life vest. I know for, for me there have been times when I thought that I was depending on God fully and he will show me, nope. You're still depending on your knowledge, on your likability, on your friendliness, on your credibility, on your visibility of your diligence, on your ability to fly under every hater's radar. Let me 
take those props away from you so you can really trust me. And yes, it hurts. In my positions as a professor and as a staff pastor, I often get to speak with a disappointed recent college graduate or a disheartened young married. Recently, one of them asked me if someone could have a midlife crisis in his or her 20s. Isn't that a great question? Can you have a midlife crisis in your 20s? <laughs> I replied, yes. <laughs> because at any point in life, we can be disillusioned by not seeing our dreams and expectations being actualized. It is then that we become tempted to leave a marriage or buy a new boat that we don't need or a sports car that we don't need, etc., in order to fight against any idea that we are failures. I told a student, promise me you won't do anything like that. Instead of such wrong-headed responses, we each need to think of any and all good that has come from the last affliction such as growth, MoMA uh, movement from a bad situation that we could not see, gaining a needed dose of humility, the ability to learn how to praise while beholding pain, new friends and new community, being forced to see something undesirable within ourselves, and also learning in the affliction that Jesus is a rock, that he is a fortress, that he is a shield and a strong tower, that he is a fence and a healer and a sustainer, a door opener and a good shepherd down in death's valley. Yes, he is. Examine how the Lord has used your deepest stomach-knotting pains to bond you, to bond us to people with whom we otherwise never would have bonded, to make us a resource to some but to be able to tell some the resources that we found, to learn that we are not as faithful or as meek or as gentle or as gracious as we thought we were, or to learn that we have not overcome the bitterness or anger that we thought that we had overcome, the squeezing of the vice grips on us made those stubborn remnants of sin spill out of us and those weaknesses remaining spill out of us. But look at what we have become and are becoming in the process. God is molding us into a people of His good pleasure who will not and cannot rely on ourselves. We become a people who let him be Savior and Lord in all things. I can't begin to tell you who has benefited from me making my own deep-to-the-gut harm that I have received at the hands of a church and a pastor many years ago. But as one who has been delivered from what those things did to our family, to our fam finances, and even to some of our friendships, and even multiplying trauma experiences already existing in our home, I now get to say to those of you who are skeptical about participating in church that your 
and my woundings were localized and that every church is not like those churches that you and I experienced, like the places that we have been. And I get to tell you that even if you are not yet ready to come back into a local congregation and make it your home, please don't turn away from Jesus because he's faithful. Don't let that wounded experience make you turn away from the only one who can heal us. Look too at what neither Paul nor I am saying. A little differently than John Calvin, Paul is not saying that the Lord created the hurt and harm that brought Paul to feel the sentence of death but as a byproduct of the despairing that stems from others afflicting Paul as they act with evil, Paul will learn to rely on God alone as God delays Paul's deliverance. Or, as Joseph likewise tells us, some mean the affliction of Paul for evil, but God means the affliction of Paul for good. Paul gives us the gospel in miniature in these lines so that we can see again that everything is about the gospel. He first says, God raises the dead. Paul has this hope because God has already raised Jesus from the dead. And so he lets the Corinthians know that God delivers. God delivers in the past. God delivers in the present. And God delivers in the future. Paul says, he delivered past. He says, he will deliver us now. And Paul says he will deliver us again. That's talking about the future. Delivering Paul from threats from his own countrymen is no different for God than delivering Paul from being shipwrecked in the deep multiple times or delivering him from grave unto glory. God delivers. Period. It's like that Geico commercial that says, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. <laughs> That's what you do. If Geico's marketing division let Paul write a commercial, he would say, if you're God, you deliver. That's what you do. That's our hope. That God is the one who rescues, who saves, who comes through right on time, who makes a way out of no way. That's what God will do. That rescue might be through the translation from this world to the next. But for the believer, even that is God doing what only God can do. Finally, by making our despairs known, the church can join in our deliverance through prayer. The church can join in our deliverance through prayer. As Paul writes in verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Paul calling for prayer here seems almost contradictory to not relying on human effort. Yet the inclusion of these verses show that prayer is not self-reliance. 
It is asking the Lord to do everything to deliver us. Now, yes, I know I said earlier that we can pray in God-reliance and not see concurrent attempts at self-effort. But praying itself is an act of God-reliance. Paul calls the church to pray for him and for Timothy to be delivered in the future. The church is not resolved of acting because we are trusting the Lord. Or as Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase of this verse, you and your prayers are part of the rescue operation. Why would Paul encourage them to participate with him in prayer? Well, without making known his despair, who gets to give thanks when God comes through for Paul? Paul is not thinking about himself or how he will look if he admits his despair. He is concerned about the entire assembly at Corinth giving glory to God for what the Lord is doing through Paul's afflictions. If you are one who tends to let the prayerless pass you by, or always gives those distance from you prayers. You know what distance from you prayers are? Things like pray for our country, pray for our troops, pray for our first respondents, pray for Uvalde school shooting. Those things are all good to pray about, but they have nothing to do with you personally, distant from you prayers. If you tend to give those prayers all the time, but never write something like, pray for me, I. Allow me to say to you, please stop deflecting and hiding, and please stop withholding our blessings from all of us, from, from this congregation. Let this congregation pray for you also. Add a personal prayer request when the congregation invites prayer, and start it with, pray for me, please, I. I don't want to put my dad in a home, but I see no other way. Or, I am still hating my father's neglect, and I don't want to embrace him. I am tired of my family pointing out my singleness, my divorce, my poor marriage, or my troubled child. I am up to my neck in frustrations with my child's educational or emotional needs. I can't believe the Lord took my only close friend away, and it hurts. How will the Lord ever deliver me from this? Once you give your thing to other believers in this body to pray, then together with all the saints of God, sit back and watch what Jesus will do. Because Jesus knows something about God being a deliverer. In Matthew 2, when Herod wanted to slaughter him when he was nearing the age of two years old, the Lord sent the Magi home another way. And he spoke to Joseph in some dreams not to go back there. 
When the people wanted to throw him off a cliff for boldly rebuking their unbelief in the synagogue in Luke 4, he so mixed in with the crowd that the people lost sight of him and couldn't destroy him. And at other times, when people picked up stones to stone him, he always imagined to escape or imagined to escape their efforts. But then came that day in the garden when there was no detour around death, when there was no bridge to get over the troubled waters of the cross, there was no one to make a way out of no way. On that day when death loomed over Jesus, all Jesus could do was say, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it is because Jesus has made the greatest despair ever known, known to us, that we get to know that he is the greatest deliverer that we could ever have in our corners. Nobody can deliver like the one who took the sting out of death. No one can deliver like the one of whom we sing, up from the grave he rose again. No one can deliver like the one who makes the barren give birth, who split the Red Sea, who can jump into fiery furnaces and into lion's dens and after three days get up from the dead. Make your despair known to this body so we all can join in you in the deliverance and glorify God with great thanksgiving when he does deliver. Because Jesus will deliver. Because when you're God, that's what you do. Let us pray. Father.